Well, here we are, episode three of ED GovCast. I can't quite believe it, but here we are. And today, as well as myself, Gareth Davis, ED consultant, I'm joined by one of my fabulous colleagues, Helen Bates. Are you just calling me fabulous to sweet talk me into doing this podcast? Absolutely. Whatever I could do to get people involved, the better. It's an absolute delight to be here. So thank you very much, Gareth. So as I've said, we're into episode three. We've got lots of content and we're just going to get stuck into it. So as promised, we're going to talk about some clinical cases. Um, Now, this month we had two excellent cases presented in our meeting. The first one was a patient who presented with a hypertensive emergency. And this is something we see quite often, patients presenting with hypertension, Helen. It is. And I think it's something that we find a little bit difficult to manage in the emergency department because often the management of hypertension is the realms of our colleagues in the GP land rather than in the emergency department. Uh, But I think I certainly took some useful points away from the case that was presented. And I think there's a really useful guideline that we can discuss uh, if you'd like to tell us about the case, Gary. Yeah, so as you mentioned, we often see patients presenting with hypertension sent in by primary care. Uh, And this one that was presented by one of our colleagues, Asam, one of our specialty registrars, was a patient actually referred him from ophthalmology because they discovered that this gentleman had papadema on fundoscopy. So was sent in to figure out why. Now, when he came in, the patient just said, look, I don't really have any symptoms. I've had some blurry vision for the last two months, but that's why I went to see the eye doctor. When they looked at the patient, yes, he looked fine. They did the usual things like observations, but couldn't actually get a blood pressure. So then they started doing a manual blood pressure and found that his blood pressure was about 300 nod. Which is astounding. At that point, it was decided to put an arterial line in to get proper evidence of this blood pressure. And I think it was certainly greater than 300 systolic Helen. I, I believe so. I think, in fact, we were sent a picture of it, probably to prove that the arterial line was recording such a high blood pressure. Absolutely. And I was thinking, oh my goodness. Well, I think most people felt like, oh yeah, definitely need to give this patient some labetalol because that's the highest blood pressure we've ever seen. I think that is the advice that we were sort of sending over. I think everybody was so shocked by this number um, that the immediate response from an emergency physician would be that number needs to be lowered. We could think about this blood pressure in the same way that we think about other clinical syndromes that we say. So maybe things like diabetic ketoacidosis, where actually the patient hasn't just developed that blood pressure that day. He'd been having eye problems for a number of weeks. So actually that blood pressure had been gradually going up and up and actually probably the wrong thing to do would have been to do a knee-jerk reaction of giving him some IV medication to drop that blood pressure too quickly. Certainly we see lots of patients like that you know if I ever go into streaming or RAT and I find a patient who's been sent in by their GP oh look their blood pressure's 180 systolic must go to the emergency department and you speak to the patient and they're absolutely fine yeah um, and then we're like oh well what do I do with this but this clearly was something different to the point that the blood pressure was so high. So what guidelines did they use in the end? So yeah, so actually the guidelines that um, Asim referred to in his talk were management of hypertensive crisis and they came from the British and Irish Hypertension Society who created a position statement on it and actually has got a really good and useful flowchart in their paper that you can access online, which tells you exactly what to do with suspected hypertension crisis. And what number do they start off with? So they categorise their hypertensions and their acute severe hypertension is a severe elevation of blood pressure, which they talk about usually being greater than 180 over 120. So I mean, this guy was well and beyond 
yeah. that sort of blood pressure reading. And that's what they call acute severe. Malignant is a distinct pathophysiological condition with an elevated blood pressure, but is also associated with retinopathy. And then there's finally hypertensive emergencies, which are elevated blood pressure with evidence of acute and or life-threatening end organ damage. Yeah, and I think we we often scratch our heads about what is an emergency, what is accelerated, urgent, and there's lots of um, terminology around that. I think for me, the learning point here is when do I need to give them intravenous therapy? Yeah, and that's what the guideline helps with. So in the guideline, if you suspect a hypertensive crisis, it asks you to think about acute life-threatening end organ damage and in particular retinopathy. Now, it's difficult for us in the emergency department to be able to grade retinopathy, but clearly in this gentleman's case, uh, he'd been sent up because an opt optician was worried about his um, retinopathy. So actually the guideline says that if there's only eye changes, then you can treat this as malignant or accelerated hypertension. And then it would be with oral therapy, not with IV therapy. And the suggested first line would be a calcium channel blocker or a beta blocker, unless of course those are contraindicated. The evidence for using IV antihypertensives is if there is not evidence of eye changes only. So there are other evidence of end organ damage, which they classify as things like an acute aortic dissection or acute renal failure. And then you would look to use IV libitolol, but also admit them to an ITU unit because obviously they're going to need intensive monitoring of their blood pressure whilst they're having IV therapy. Yeah. For me, that's the patient's who are the proper emergencies, as I would say. So your dissections, your cerebral hemorrhages and, and preeclampsias, for example, in pregnant women, definitely going to need intravenous therapy. And pretty much all the rest, we can use orals. We can. And the suggestion is that you check compliance with their oral antihypertensives. You maximise the dose if you feel that's appropriate and obviously organise GP follow-up for those patients. Yeah, and I think the patients the other end of the scale who've come in with an incidental hypertension, who don't really have any symptoms whatsoever, I think probably we can just carry on just recommending they take their blood pressures at home, for example, ambulatory blood pressures, maybe a week of BP monitorings and, and send them to their GP and then they can start thinking about antihypertensive therapy as per the NICE guidelines. I think that's a good idea. Great. Well, that's hypertension. So Gareth, let's crack on with our next crack. case. That's crack being the operative word here, I think. So Stian presented a case for us, and Stian is one of our trainee ACPs. It was great to see him getting involved in the governance meeting. And he presented the case of an, an elderly uh, lady who came into us a couple of days after she had a fall where she'd landed on the left-hand side of her chest. And that was essentially her presenting complaint, this injury to the left-hand side of her chest. And he described to us that, you know, on paper, she should have looked pretty poorly. But in actual fact, I presented this lovely picture, which he'd found on Google, of a pleasant old lady sitting smiling at him, which is exactly the case that he saw. And I pretty know which way this is going to go, Helen. <laughs> <laughs> so the rat team did a great job. And when they saw her, they recognised that this could be a case of silver trauma and organised a CT scan for her. While Stian was rating the report of that, he obviously assessed the patient and found her to be in generally good health, but to be tender down the left-hand side of her chest. But no presence of surgical emphysema, although he did feel that he felt a few cracking ribs in there. Cracking ribs. Always good to feel. It's the word of the day. And in actual fact, the CT chest confirmed that, that she had some broken ribs. And so he went about trying to decide whether the patient needed to be admitted for pain relief or whether actually this patient who in front of him looked well could go home. 
And that was the point of his talk, really, is that with the frailty team, with some discussion with some senior doctors in the emergency department, they did decide to send this patient home. She represented to the emergency department and he showed us a really good CT scan of her chest where she has essentially developed a left-sided haemothorax. Yeah, so that's, I guess, somewhat unsurprising that this happened. But there was a bit of a time delay with regards to her being discharged with a safety net and her representing, I think it was actually seven days, if I'm correct. It was seven days later. So a I guess... old week. Yeah, a week. So would you keep someone in hospital for a whole week? I very much doubt it. I think this lady would have had some pain relief. Uh, we didn't discuss in the governance meeting the different pain reliefs that you could use, but things like a lignocaine patch, she might have had a rib block um, in order to manage that pain. But I definitely think that they would have been looking for discharge for her within two to three days, managing on her on oral medication. And so the fact that she came back in seven days later with her haemothorax, um, I think we can put down to being pretty unusual and not as a direct result of the care that she got in the emergency department initially. If only, Helen, there was a national or local guideline that we could use. Well, funny you should say that, Gareth, because generally we don't talk about these cases unless there is something that we can reference. And in this case, it's the battles criteria. Is that a battle sign or is that different? So this is something different. This is something different. Yes, that's really interesting. I didn't realise that battles criteria came from the author of the paper as opposed to some sort of military term. You just um, you just kind of think of someone who's in a battle and blown up. Yeah, with rib fractures. That's not the case. It's not. Uh, so rib fractures in the ED um, are not probably uncommonly um, diagnosed, especially in our, you know, in Hampshire, I think we definitely see a sort of more elderly population presenting to the emergency department. And you can consider them to be low risk, in which case it's just pain control and discharge or um, admission because of their pain not being controlled by the analgesia that you are giving them or because of complications such as seeing a haemothorax on the chest x-ray. If that's the case, then for most hospitals, it would be referral to the surgical unit unless you've, I guess, got a cardiothoracic unit in your hospital. Um, and you might want to involve ICU or at least outreach because obviously one of the ongoing complications that you're worried about is a respiratory function or respiratory decline. And then you can use the scoring system in order to work out what their probability of complications are. So an age is a variable that you might want to think about. So you get plus one for each 10 years over the age of 10. Uh, the number of rib fractures, because obviously the more rib fractures you've got, the more painful it's going to be, the more likely you are to have complications underlying. And that's th uh, plus three for each fracture. If they've got chronic lung disease, they get a plus five. If they're on anticoagulants, and interestingly, this lady was on um, aspirin, but they exclude that for battles criteria, you get a plus four. And their oxygen, oxygen sats on air on initial assessment is plus two for each 5% below 95%. So that gives you quite a wide ranging score from zero up to more than 30 points. And essentially your risk increases with every five to 10 points up from there. They did come back and I think was managed okay. Yeah, so they came back. Stian, I think, had been keeping an eye out for her because um, I think he had been worried about his initial discharge. Um, and he got on the phone to cardiothoracics and asked their advice. Um, and essentially, she ended up and having a chest drain in place to drain the haemothorax. And she made a good recovery. Okay, fantastic. Well, I guess that the learnings here is, is how to sort of risk or a, a chest injury, it's certainly in the silver trauma patients, um, when to intervene what imaging to do and when to discharge. So certainly for everybody working in Hampshire, if they want to have a look at the ELAS app, it's all there for you. 
Um, but I, hopefully this podcast will also be quite informative for you in future. Thank you. Okay, so this month we're going to actually have an external speaker via a telephone call directly to the podcast. And I'm pleased to say that uh, we're joined here with one of our colleagues, one of our EM consultants, Jay Chitness, who's going to talk to us about um, lower back pain and corduroy syndrome. Jay? Hi, Garrett. Thank you for having me on the podcast. We presented and talked today about the corduroy syndrome being uh, a significant surgical emergency that needs uh, urgent decompression uh, and there's issues with diagnosis. It was important that we recognize that when there is someone coming in with a change in their back pain or acute severe back pain with uh, potential neurologic symptoms such as um, muscle weakness in their lower limbs or sensory loss, uh, saddle anesthesia um, or change in their bowel or bladder habits urinary incontinence or retention, that they're promptly uh, assessed thoroughly, uh, uh, especially uh, a, a thorough neurologic examination. A very useful adjuncts um, that can be used for the assessment uh, are a, a pre-void and post-void bladder scan, and when necessary, a catheter, uh, checking catheter sensation and catheter tug to make the diagnosis as a possible suspected corticoina syndrome, and which should really lead to an urgent MRI scan, ideally done within four hours from presentation. And if that does show that there is corticoina, then they again need an urgent referral to the spinal surgical team for a decompression, ideally again done within 12 hours uh, onset of symptoms. Well, thanks for that, Jay. Yeah, we, we know that um, corticoina syndrome or suspected corticoina syndrome is a, is a massive problem for us in emergency care. We often see patients with lower back pain and it's it's difficult to try and get to the diagnosis quickly because of constraints, for example, the MRI scans. And I know that the Get It Right first time team have been looking into this. Is there anything you've picked up on that, Jay? Uh, are excellent guidelines for uh, management of uh, the corticoina syndrome from diagnosis through to uh, intervention. And they have uh, produced a uh, online tool where you can actually populate symptoms and work through like a flowchart uh, uh, where you will arrive at a, in terms of whether or not you should proceed with imaging and you know what next steps to do based on your examination and assessment of the patient. Uh, so it's a great tool from GERFT and hopefully we standardize some care. Fantastic, Jay. Well, I'd like to thank you for joining us. You're our first person that we've had the call into the podcast. So um, well done for that. And um, hopefully we'll have lots more in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you, Gary. So Gareth, I'm going to ask you a question now. How many central lines have you put in this week? Well, I like to watch, before I come to work, watch an episode of ER. Okay. Yeah. And then I see Dr. Green putting central lines in and doing tubes every episode. So then I come in and like to put in about four or five. Perfect. And you feel that that knowledge of watching ER keeps your knowledge up to date? Absolutely. But I would say, though, that when I wake up, I realise I've not put one in probably for about a year. Okay. I'm going to truthfully say, I think... It's been longer for myself yeah. uh, since I put central lines in. I feel that as an ITUSHO, I put in so many that is one of those techniques that I could literally do yeah. in my sleep if I wanted to. But it's not something that we commonly do now in the emergency department. No, I agree. And I, I feel certainly when I did my acute care common stem, I put in 
you know, at least 100 central lines over that six to 12 months I was doing that. So, I, yeah, I agree. I probably put one in if I had to. Um, but we increasingly common for us as consultants, at least, is to manage a room uh, and maybe delegate tasks to other specialties. And um, so even if we're not the person putting that line in, we need to know if someone's put else is putting it in and it's not going so well, how to step in. We did have an incident, I think, that's brought up this week. And Helen, you're going to talk about that briefly? Yeah, so our colleague came from anaesthetics. It's really great when people want to share stuff at our clinical governance meeting that they've learned through processes in their own departments. Um, in this case, the anaesthetist wanted to speak to us about a carotid artery cannulation. Now, I remember this being a risk um, when I was performing uh, central lines as a junior. And I remember um, sonocyte coming into play when we were learning. And at that point, the ultrasound use was to locate the internal jugular vein and literally visibly landmark that and then put the ultrasound down whilst you actually did the cannulation. What I'm not surprised to hear is that ultrasound now is obviously part of commonplace putting lines in but I didn't understand the views and the technology has advanced to a point where the views that they can get are really great and essentially the case that he presented was a carotid artery cannulation that happened despite the fact that the operator was using ultrasound and the key learning point was that when they were doing the views for the internal jugular vein they were looking to see the guide wire which was something quite new to me um i understand that ultrasound obviously can show you the guide wires but the different views that he um used were really interesting so do you want to explain to us what those views were yeah so i i guess i'm i did my training in the ultrasound age um sorry to tell you helen uh, are you saying that i'm old oh, just a little bit <laughs> not too old and i Yes, I was taught to use two planes. So you've got your sort of one view, which is the sort of, as you see on the screen, the circle with a needle in. Yeah. Uh, and then you slip over to a longitudinal plane, which you can see the long blood vessel, for example. And on his views, in the middle of the cross-sectional plane, there was just this bright white dot in the middle. Yeah. And that is your wire. That is you confirming yeah. that the wire is in the middle of the vein. But then they did the in-plane view. Yeah. Um, and they couldn't see the guide wire. Now, at that point... Um, the operator decided to just carry on and use other ways of confirming it. For example, they looked at the the blood coming out of the needle. Yeah, and the colour of the blood. Yeah. Now, I must admit, I have inadvertently cannulated arteries, carotid arteries in my time, and the blood pumped out like you'd expect it to. Yeah. I painted a few ED ceilings in my time. Okay. Um, but in this scenario, it didn't for some reason. Yeah. And also they did a uh, confirmatory gas. Which I remember doing back in the day. Yep. And that gas showed that those sats were 87% and a PO2 of 6, yep. which doesn't fit with an arterial gas, no. that it was arterial blood that they were sampling. Now, in this case, and I think this is why it's progressed to governance, is the fact that unfortunately this patient's uh, carotid artery was dilated. And, and I always remember, look, yes, you can stick a needle in, a, in artery and you can get away with that. Um, yeah. But if you dilate it, then you start being in trouble. Now, unfortunately, this patient's uh, carotid artery was dilated and it was only discovered when the line was transduced, which showed a lovely arterial trace that they were in fact in an artery. And I think there'd been a few warning signs beforehand, hadn't there? I think the patient had become confused and distressed following the line insertion and then there was no obvious cause for that requiring the patient to be intubated and ventilated, which they weren't on ITU at that point. And I think 
if we're just going to highlight this uh, from a learning point of view, yeah. yes, we've all talked about inadvertently cannulating an artery and never to dilate it. But what do we do if it gets dilated? And this case summarizes that neatly. Yeah, it was. And I think our colleague did briefly then talk about a local guideline. Uh, keeping calm. Not removing the line. Yeah, that's the key point. Don't yeah. remove the line. And I think you may want to, you may feel like you really need to remove that line because it shouldn't be in there, but please don't. Discuss with the local vascular team and they will most likely advise you to start a heparin infusion and then get them transferred to their unit. And what was the key learning point about the heparin? Which line should you not be using yeah, for don't, the heparin? Don't put it in the central line. Yeah. So in fact, don't use any, don't use that central line. Don't put any drugs or fluids into that line and certainly don't stick heparin down it. Stay calm, keep it in, speak to your vascular colleagues who will likely take it out under surgical uh, provisions. Now, unfortunately, this patient uh, did go on to have a stroke, yeah. um, um, but we can all take this learning and hopefully uh, prevent this from happening again. And it was a really interesting discussion because I think uh, our anaesthetic colleague felt that we were actually doing quite a lot of lines uh, in our emergency departments, which I think the majority of us felt probably wasn't the case. And so he's going to target this training also at our middle grades. But I think the point that you raised at the beginning is actually really important. Even if it's our middle grades that are performing the skill, it's really important that the consultant supervising them has oversight of what they're doing and any p potential complications that might occur as a result of the procedure. So this month, as you might have noticed, I'm joined by Helen. And Helen Bates um, actually is a paediatric emergency physician. She did an extra year of training just to see the children. They are so special in my life. It's not a day that I regret that I include children in my um, clinical care, which apparently makes me old. Um, I've Only a little after... bit, as I said. Sorry? Only a little bit, as Only I said. Only a little bit, a little bit old. Um, I've looked after children for all of that time. And I've always been involved in safeguarding and governance around children. Um, and that's why I'm involved in um, the governance with you, Gareth. Um, but there was two cases that I was going to discuss, which include children. And both of them, really, it's about trying to highlight the learning points. So the first case that I uh, was going to present was a post-tonsillectomy bleed. And this is something that I probably haven't seen myself for quite some time. Normally, by the time post-tonsillectomy bleeds get to us, it feels like they've stopped bleeding and therefore it's a much more sort of calm and controlled manner. However, this girl who'd had her tonsils out five days ago had woken up with bleeding at seven o'clock in the morning. And it felt like one of those perfect storm mornings where I turned up for the early shift as a consultant and my registrar and one of the SHOs had called in sick. So it was just me and one other SHO running the emergency department. And this poor girl was sitting there with a head in a bucket, spitting out bright red blood as well as maroony, fleshy clots. Oh dear. It was not... Was it an ODA moment or no? It was. I mean, I think there was more than ODA okay. going through my head. I mean, we quite often see these patients though, don't we? I, I That uncommon to, to see patients with post-tonsillectomy and we all know that it can progress to a, a, a dire emergency and that's why we always, we always admit them and don't just send them away. Yeah, and the admission part was probably the the tricky part because at the weekends we don't have ENT 
uh, on call from our hospital. It's from one of our local hospitals. And so we quickly put a few things into action. Clearly, IV cannulation, observation, resus, and some IV tranexamic acid were the key treatments that we instigated initially. And then we had a chat with our colleagues at Southampton who actually pointed out that possibly an anaesthetic escort for transfer to the local hospital uh, would be advisable. After a couple of false calls to anaesthetics, we um, established that this was a potential airway emergency. And actually, our anaesthetic colleagues responded really quickly uh, and came down with their transfer bag and we were able to transfer her quickly. In reflection after this case, I wondered whether there was a few things that maybe I could have done differently. So one of the things I thought about was actually whether I could have asked ENT to come to our hospital in order to treat this patient. We had a potentially unstable airway. She had a assumed the position over the bowl, I think, in order to be able to maintain her own airway. And perhaps putting her in the back of an ambulance with an anaesthetic colleague was suboptimal if we could have had ENT transfer to us. However, the tranexamic acid did a really good job of stopping the bleeding. And actually within the sort of 15 to 20 minutes that we were dealing with this case, the bleeding had stopped. And so actually she went with an anaesthetic transfer, but it was a much safer transfer. Other things that I learned about from having discussed the case with my ENT colleague was using adrenaline-soaked gauze. Have you ever done that with your post-tonsillectomy bleeds? Not with post-tonsillectomy bleeds. I've used mostly an epistaxis. Yeah. So uh, what my ENT colleague said was that in older, more tolerant patients, you can actually roll some gauze up on a McGill's forceps, soak it in one in 10,000 adrenaline and push it into the um, tonsillar fossa and apply direct pressure. That might make them gag a little bit though. Well, it might make them gag. And I think that the tolerant patient part of that is actually really important. And this was a 16-year-old who I don't think would have tolerated that. Um, But interestingly, and this is something that I am very much more familiar with using, nebulized adrenaline was discussed or using the colphenylene spray, which is that spray that comes in the blue bottle that we do use for epistaxis. Okay. Well, I'm fully on board with the nebulized adrenaline. So am I. I mean, I, you know, I have used it a lot in croup. Sadly, there's not a lot of evidence out there when you do a quick Google search um, to see about nebulized adrenaline. But in theory, the principle to me works. If you're going to put soaked adrenaline directly onto the tonsillar fossa, then why would nebulized adrenaline not work equally good? I think there is evidence of nebulizing tranexamic acid uh, as well but obviously we were able to get IV access in this lady we weren't going to transfer her without IV access so IV tranexamic acid was definitely the best route for her well that sounds great I mean as ever key learning here I think what to do in that scenario who to speak to what treatments we can use so certainly I've learned something there that the use of adrenaline whether that's trying to stick it in with um, a McGill's forceps or even nebulizing it I hadn't thought about that in in this case and you also mentioned tranexamic acid, which we we use a lot uh, for bleeding patients. So yes. Key conversations. I think that's the learning point I took away. Is the patient in the right place? And actually, they were in a safe place. Therefore, should I have moved the doctor to the right place? Yeah. And uh, I've certainly had those conversations around patients, for example, with stridal. Um, yeah. That's more common when you're having those conversations. And it's a real pain in the neck uh, if you work in a boom, district boom. general. Yeah. That was a joke, actually, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> So if you don't work in in the Gucci trauma center, you're going to have to have these conversations with people. And yes, as Helen mentioned, you may have to get that person to your department. And I think there is precedence for for specialties coming to our hospitals, uh, for example, in, in, in stridering patients. 
Brilliant. So the second case I was going to highlight was a young child who presented to us with a head injury following what was a fairly innocuous injury at soft play. And I was sitting in our doctor's office when I saw this child, four-year-old, being carried through our department through to recess. And I thought to myself, oh, we've got a child in DKA in because he looked really sick. And when I went into the recess room to see him, I could smell the vomit coming off him. And I thought, wow, I haven't seen a DK in a while. This will be interesting. And as I approached him and said, hey, everybody, what's going on here? I was told that he had a head injury, which gave me the heebie-jeebies because I see a lot of head injuries working in the paediatric area of REDs. And most head injuries are just need some reassurance. They just need sometimes a bit of observation, a good dose of analgesia, and they'll be able to go home. But to see a child that has vomited so much that they smell of it on their clothes and is looking so pale and pasty, it's really unusual. What worried me more was when they got the observations on, his pulse rate was between 80 and 90 beats per minute with a blood pressure of around 110. So I think I would have had the heebie-jeebies too. Thank you. I'm glad. That's, yes, I agree. I see a lot of head injuries in children and most of them don't even need to come to the department. So I phoned the radiologist straight away to book a CT head scan for him. And my next calls were to paediatrics and to anesthesia. And in actual fact, one of the learning points from me was that I sat there thinking to myself, who do I call first? Do I call peds first? Do I call anesthetics first? Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters. And in actual fact, the answer was I called 2222 to get everybody there that instant. And everybody came and they were super helpful. And initially we hoped, everybody agreed that a CT head scan was, was needed. Everybody agreed that some airway support was needed. But actually he hadn't vomited at this point during his stay in the emergency department. So our initial thoughts were to get round to the CT scanner with him unintubated. And literally just as we were going to leave the doors, he sat upright and had further vomiting. And the intensivist was super proactive and straight away said, that's absolutely fine. We're going to now RSI this child to take them safely to scan. And that's what happened. And the RSI happened really quickly. The team seemed well-versed in what they were doing. Everybody was on board with um, getting this RSI done so we could get to the CT head scanner. And do you know what the CT head scan showed? Well, it's either going to be, it's one extreme to the other. It should be absolutely normal or lots of things wrong. It was absolutely normal. Oh, no. It was. And for a moment, I thought to myself, wow, I overcalled that. And then I looked back and I thought, well, if I overcalled it, so did the paediatric consultant, so did the ITU consultant, and so did the anaesthetic consultant. We all had a single vision that this child needed a CT head scan. And we got that CT head scan. We did speak to our local PICU retrieval team just to check that they were happy once we had a normal scan to extubate. And we did that. He made a really good recovery. He slept really well on paediatrics overnight and he got sent home the next day. So although I haven't got a really juicy CT head scan to show you, I think there were some key learning points there. We've always got to remember that a low pulse and a high blood pressure in children with a head injury is a worrying sign. If you find yourself at a telephone thinking, oh my goodness, who do I ring first? Then sometimes the answer is actually just put a 2222 call out in order to get the help you need. And make sure that you do a safe transfer to CT. And in this case, we were hoping to do that without an RSI, but in actual fact the patient declared for himself and we did RSI him and we safely transferred him and he came to no harm for having had that RSI to get that CT scan. Yeah this is a good example of process and outcome. I mean as emergency physicians certainly as consultants sometimes you feel a bit 
embarrassed by calling everybody else. Certainly doing the 222 seems a bit below us. Um, but I agree that in some scenarios, especially in children, making that phone call is really helpful and useful. So don't feel afraid to do that. And as I've said before, park your ego, uh, because that usually gets in the way of these things. Having been a consultant for 10 years, my ego has been... Put in the box and... Dismissed. Buried. I know now what I know and what I don't know. And yeah, these are the times when you just think, I need to get that child into the CT scanner or I need to do this. And that just needs to happen quickly. This has come up a few times in trauma, for example, when you, when you've done a CT scan and there's multiple injuries. Don't feel afraid to just put a trauma call, you yeah. know, even though they've been in the department now and a half, because you get everybody in the room and then you can get a bit of consensus about the patient rather than mm. making 15 phone calls. Yeah. So Gareth, that's brought us to the end of your third GovCast. How do you feel? Well, it's great to have a female voice at last on the podcast. You got in there before me. Just like to thank you, Helen, for joining us this month. And hopefully you'll be on the podcast from now on. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. I have to say that it takes a little bit of time getting used to the equipment and to the style of presenting, but I have actually really enjoyed myself. So thank you, Gareth. So we've had lots of great content this month. We've had a case of hypertension. And certainly looking at those numbers, my blood pressure went up a bit. Helen, what do you think? I think so. I think I remember at the time sitting on my sofa, feeling sorry for the epic in charge of that case. Exactly. We had a patient with rib fractures. So the silver trauma patients. The silver trauma, we really need to keep our eyes out for these cases now. Silver trauma is becoming a recognised phenomenon. And I think this was a perfect example of one of those cases. Then we moved on to what to do if you stick a central line in an artery. Which was a great learning point. Those ultrasound views and the use of ultrasound is really important. But also, as you summarise the key points of keeping calm and don't remove the line. Don't remove that line. And speak to vascular. And speak to vascular. And there were the cases that I presented. So the case of the post-tonsillectomy bleed. What was your key learning point from that? So again, stay calm. Yeah. Um, use agents like tranexamic acid. They really work. Yeah. Consider adrenaline. So whether that's soaked on some gauze with a McGill or ENT, considering getting them to our department rather than sending the patient. And then we finished off with a head injury case, which was probably disappointing in terms of the actual um, CT scan imaging, but I think had a lot of useful learning points for children with head injuries who have low pulses, high blood pressures, and just getting, again, the right team to that patient to make sure that you get a safe and timely investigation completed. Absolutely. And that was a great example of, of the correct process. So well done. Thank you. So that's it, folks. Um, thank you, everyone, and we'll see you next month.